Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading in Luke 2, 21 through 40. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You may be seated. Well, many of you, if you've been around for a while, know that I am very interested in World War II history. Uh, so much so that I've been told by our residents and interns that I need to talk about World War II a lot less in my sermons. But one of the great blessings of having lived in Europe in the early 2000s is that I would meet older people who lived through World War II. And I got to hear insane stories. And I just, I loved hearing them. And at one point we lived on the Gulf of Salerno, which is in Italy. It's um, it's the first place that Allied forces landed in Europe, even before Normandy. And this old lady who lived next to us, who's no longer with us, she was eight years old when the invasion happened. And she would tell us about that morning when the sun rose and you have this 80 mile long gulf. And as the light, as the sun rose and the light made everything visible, you could see nothing but warships in the entire bay. All of a sudden. And she was saying how, how it was interesting how differently people reacted to all the Allied warships seemingly in front of, right in front of them. They actually lived on the water. 
And she said, everybody, everybody reacted differently. There were a few German soldiers in the hills and they panicked and left. And then she was like, you know, a lot of us were confused. We didn't know what to do. She said, my mom really panicked. That's a whole nother story. But she said, I remember as an eight-year-old looking up to my dad. And she said, I wouldn't have thought about it like this at the time, but I, w- I was looking to him to see how should I process what we're seeing here. And he looked down at her and he said, we're saved. And so it's interesting to me how one person can interpret that kind of situation with so much uncertainty and so much loss already and potential loss and discern it in a very different way than everyone else. And so when I come to this passage where Simeon and Anna saw something in Jesus that nobody else saw, I can't, I can't not think about that old Italian man. And of course, his salvation was from an earthly temporal war, evil, you know, an evil army or however he interpreted it. The salvation, though, that Simeon and the prophetess Anna see is an eternal one. It's so much bigger, so much more at stake. And and it's interesting to me how few people saw this in the baby Jesus. Because you you had Herod, who hated the idea of a baby Jesus, but he he couldn't find baby Jesus. He didn't know what he was looking for, really. Then you had the whole town of Bethlehem. Last week we talked about Bethlehem. They were all largely ambivalent to the Savior in their midst at that time. And I want to give them all, you know, a a, a little bit of... um, I defend them a little bit, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because there's nothing probably about this baby that would have screamed Savior. It, it wouldn't have been easy to see. They were from a very poor family. We know that by the offering of two pigeons. They, they were from, you know, Nazareth, you know, just from Nowheresville. They, there were probably rumors already circulating about who Jesus' real dad was. This Holy Spirit virgin birth story is you know, crazy, some people would have said. But there was something about Simeon and Anna, and they processed the same set of events in a very different way. They saw something in this baby that no one else saw. They saw salvation. And so I want to I look at this story, and I want to highlight three specific things that they saw in this baby. The consolation of Israel, a light to the Gentiles, and a sign that will be opposed. So, the consolation of Israel. It's important to define this word because in our context, what do we think of when we think of the word consolation? Consolation prize, right? You know, something you get when you don't really get what you want, which is problematic if you apply that to Jesus in this way, because it's like, well, you didn't get what you really wanted. Here's Jesus. <laughs> That's not what a consolation is, and certainly not in this context. A cons- someone who brings consolation is bringing hope to somebody who's grieving, who's fulfilling longings in our heart. To console means to comfort, and Simeon sees in this baby the comfort, the consolation that Israel has been longing for. So Mary and Joseph, they walk into the temple. It's this man, Simeon, it seems like he apparently approaches them. Most likely, Simeon is a very old man. The text doesn't demand that he be an old man, but young people don't say things like, now I can die. (laughs) It's just not that you get the feeling that he is old. Every piece of art that I'm aware of that depicts the scene depicts Simeon as a very old man. It doesn't seem like he has any kind of special office or like priest or something. He just seems to be an ordinary old guy, except for one very important exception. He is filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, and that changes everything. 
And it's worth noting, this is the 10th time that Luke has pointed to the activity of the Spirit thus far in his gospel. We're only a chapter and a half in, and he's talked about the activity of the Holy Spirit 10 times. With Simeon, he says he is righteous, he is devout, but most importantly, he is led by and filled with the Holy Spirit who leads him to and shows him the consolation of Israel in this baby. Another way to say it is that Simeon has been waiting along with the rest of the nation of Israel for someone someday to come and give Israel the comfort that it has longed for for so many years. And the Holy Spirit has opened Simeon's eyes and shown him this is the one. This is the baby. This is the prophesied one who will bring the comfort to Israel that you have longed for. This is a big moment. (laughs) Just imagine being Simeon, waiting all these years, and the Holy Spirit makes it perfectly clear, this is the one. And he calls Jesus the Lord's Christ. And it's not unusual to meet people who think that Christ is Jesus' last name, like there's Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and Jesus Christ. That's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. Christ is not a last name, it's a title. So you could translate this as Jesus the Christ, Christ meant the anointed one. All of Israel has been waiting for this anointed one to come and to deliver them. The problem, though, is that there were two different Israels waiting for two different kinds of deliverance. So you have one Israel, is unbelieving Israel, who is waiting for someone to come and primarily deliver them from the occupation of Rome. Then you had another Israel, believing Israel, that is waiting for God to bring the fulfillment that he has promised in the new covenant. Even if they don't know all the details of what that looks like, they're waiting for fundamentally different things. Unbelieving Israel primarily wants their political and military supremacy to be restored in the world. They cared more about the glory of Israel than they did the glory of God. And they wanted someone who would deliver them from what they perceive to be their biggest problem in the world, Rome. Not knowing that they have a bigger problem than Rome. And that problem is inside of them. What they need God to do is not deal with Rome, but to deal with their own sin and rebellion against him. And I mean, it it makes sense that when we don't see what our biggest problem is, then we're going to look at other perceived enemies in our midst and elevate them to that position. That's my biggest problem. And when we do that, we're minimizing the consolation of Israel, Jesus the Christ. Because if we haven't identified our biggest problem, we're not going to be able to appreciate our greatest hope. And Simeon, he didn't make that mistake. You know, I, he, he, I, I wonder if he was looking at Daniel 9 and saw the 490 years of waiting is up. I don't know, but he sees this baby. And in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is able to see past the difficulties and disheartening realities in his day and rejoice that the consolation of Israel has come. But it's also really important to see that Luke is doing something else here as well. Really important that we see this. He wants his audience to understand that what's happening here is not a 90 degree turn in the faith. 
You know, it's, it's not like this is a new faith, a new religion. This isn't a new Jewish sect. He wants us to see that this baby is the perfect fulfillment of what God has been working toward through all of human history. So we have to remember to appreciate this, who Luke is writing this letter to. Do you remember? That's right. I see the lips, Mary. Theophilus, you got it. So it's, we, we've talked a lot about Theophilus in Acts, right? Luke writes Luke, the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus. He writes Acts to Theophilus. We don't know a lot about who Theophilus is. We, we, he's probably some sort of Roman official. But Luke wants this man, Theophilus, to understand that the riots that are breaking out in virtually every synagogue all over the Roman Empire, they are not a result of some Jewish wayward sect but the result of unbelieving Israel, not understanding their own scriptures, not understanding their own faith, and as a result, not understanding the whole of their religion. So the problem isn't Jesus who came in and brought something totally different. The problem is that unbelieving Israel does not see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that they hold most dear. This is important for Luke that Theophilus knows this, and this is a major theme in all of his gospel. And I can't help but notice a commonality in Simeon, in Anna, in Elizabeth, in Zechariah. What do they all have in common? They're old. They're old. It's not tricky. <laughs> they're, they're all old. And I have to have this, I have this feeling that they are symbolizing the old covenant in some way. They're old, but they know their scriptures. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And like the old covenant, they are about to depart. They are about to be fulfilled. They are about to go and be with the Lord and experience his presence for all of eternity. What's going on here is big. The old covenant is being, will be fulfilled in this baby. And I do have the feeling that these old saints, full of the Holy Spirit, wisely interpreting what's going on as God's fulfillment of the prophecy as symbolizing the old covenant themselves. So, Luke wants Theophilus to know this isn't just some young group of wayward folks following Jesus and causing these problems. This movement is also full of old saints who know the scriptures and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They understand what's going on. Don't misunderstand what you're hearing from the synagogues all around this empire. So the consolation of Israel, Jesus Christ has come and with him the fulfillment of the old covenant and the birth of the new one. The era of promise is passing and the era of fulfillment has begun. This is the transition that is happening between the covenants right here in this passage. And this new era, it wasn't just for the Jews. This new era would also be for the Gentiles because as Simeon sees, this baby is a light for the Gentiles. So let's continue reading his blessings. He's holding baby Jesus in his hand and picking up again in verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So remember, again, Israel, unbelieving Israel, primarily had in mind with the coming of a Savior that he would primarily come to defeat Rome and return them to their proper place in the world. 
But Simeon, he sees something very different. <laughs> and, and this baby, he understands, isn't here to defeat the Gentiles. This baby isn't here even to put the Gentiles in line. This baby is to be a light for their revelation and they're bringing them into the kingdom of God. And right here, we have one of the most confusing questions in the Bible made very clear. How do these covenants fit together? <laughs> like, how are they different? How are they the same? How do they work together? What's new about the new covenant? And this is critical to Luke because Theophilus needs to understand that while this is something new, this is not something different. God's continuing his plan through the person of Jesus Christ. And if we understand this, we, we, we pretty much understand the whole narrative arc of the Bible. You know, we can go back to Jeremiah 31 when God says this about his new covenant. I'm going to start in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. So what was wrong in the old covenant? The old covenant wasn't what was wrong. What was wrong is the people broke the old covenant. They didn't keep the old covenant. And as a result, you have a group of God's people, people called the people of God, Israel. And inside there, there are two groups, believers and unbelievers. So the people of God is now a mixed bag of believers and unbelievers. And, God, and Jeremiah says, God through Jeremiah, Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, this isn't how it's supposed to be. The new covenant is going to be a group of people who are all believers. That's the primary difference. And we will include Gentiles. It won't be limited geographically, and they won't be led by some external law that they can't attain. Jesus will accomplish the law for them, and the law will then be in their hearts because the Holy Spirit is not going, it, the Holy Spirit inside of us is going to dwell because God doesn't just dwell in the new covenant in the temple, He dwells in us as the newer temple. So the new covenant is completely new, but not different. It is, a, it is a continuation of the work that God is doing to redeem his people. And so as a result, believing Israel is taken out of the old covenant and Gentiles for whom Jesus is a light are grafted in to use Paul's language. And that is what we now call the church. So Luke is working hard here to show Theophilus and us that this child is so much more than a political savior. And that this Jesus didn't usher in some totally different weird sect, but he is fulfilling what God has been unfolding for millennia. And it should come as no surprise then that Jesus would be opposed because when light shines, not everybody likes what they see. If you've ever put kids to bed, or no, woken the kids up, excuse me, if you've ever woken kids up. You know, kids are different based on disposition, and I'm convinced primarily age on this issue, but when you have younger kids, you go in and you flip on the light, and, and it's like you're releasing them from jail. Thank you so much for turning this light on and saving me from this enemy that is sleep. 
and then they become a certain age that all my kids are now in this camp. I turn on that light this morning, in the morning, and it's just screaming, turn it off, my eyes are burning, I can't see, and they're pulling covers over their heads and pillows over their head to do whatever they can to hide themselves from this light. Same light, totally different responses. And the same is true here with Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, but that doesn't mean that people will like what they see. The blessing that Simeon is giving is known as the nunc dimittis. It means now dismiss me. And we tend to remember the nice part of the nunc dimittis. But we forget what follows. Verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So we go from like this extreme high to this extreme low. Your baby's going to save the world, but oh yeah, he's going to be opposed at every turn, and Mary, it's going to be like a sword going through your soul to watch this. And again, there are two audiences that we have to keep in mind. You have Simeon talking to Mary. That's really important. But then you also have Luke talking to Theophilus. So we need, we need to look at both. So Simeon talking to Mary. You know, I, I just I have to wonder if, you know, he knew that Joseph was going to die. That everything that Mary would have to endure in Jesus' adult life if he knew she would be alone. Because we don't, we don't have any record of Joseph after later in this chapter when they take 12-year-old Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem and lost him. I do feel bad that this faithful man, uh, the last record we have of him is him losing Jesus. But I, I wonder if, if somewhere Stephen knew that she was going to need this. You know, she was going to watch her child grow up enduring rumors about who his father really is. She was going to see friends and even family reject him, and she was going to watch him die on a cross, alone. And I just, I have to imagine, you know, what a blessing, a sweet mercy of God this blessing is, because in, she endures these unimaginable heartbreaks to be able to be reminded, God told me this was going to happen. He told me this was going to be hard. He told me this is working for the salvation of the world. I don't understand how this is happening, how this is going to happen, but I trust him because he told me that through Simeon. So there's a really important message here from Simeon to Mary. But there's also a message from Luke to Theophilus. Luke showing Theophilus, you shouldn't be surprised when Jews all over the world are rejecting Jesus because Jesus was appointed for the rising and falling of many. And some people have taken this rise and fall to say that what Luke's communicating is that at the end of time, you'll have the sorting and the rising and falling is believers being given an eternal reward and unbelievers being given eternal condemnation. And while that is a biblical truth, I don't think that's what Luke is wanting to communicate here or else Simeon would have said, this child is appointed for the rising and the falling of everyone. He doesn't say everyone, he says many. 
And I think this is important to Luke's message for Theophilus. And I think what Simeon is doing, he's picking up on the language of Isaiah, who also predicted the same thing. Isaiah 8, 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So Theophilus, I know there's a lot of turmoil and people from these other synagogues are complaining, but don't blame us for this. This is always the way that it was going to go. We knew that this Savior would be opposed. We knew he would be rejected. We knew he would be resisted. So that that tells us that Jesus would be opposed, but we have to think, why is it that Jesus would be opposed? Why would people want to oppose the Savior of the world? Well, because unbelieving Israel, they wanted a Savior who was going to be comfortable to them. They wanted a Savior who was going to support their standards and their expectations of what they wanted Him to do. They didn't want a Savior who was going to come in and challenge their idols and their power and their self-righteousness, all the while doing it under the claim that He is God Himself. So it makes sense when everything about what they want to do and be in this life is challenged in Jesus Christ, that they would resist him. And Jesus in his earthly ministry, he could have resisted them. He could have done what, he could have snapped his fingers. He wouldn't even have to do that. I mean, to, to squelch the resistance and the opposition and the persecution that he experienced, but he doesn't. Because in this text, we see the goal of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was not to condemn it was to reveal. This is why Simeon says, all this happens so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He was willing to endure rejection that we might be revealed the path to acceptance. It's the rejection of Jesus that sent him to the cross. And it was on that cross that we now can receive acceptance with God. He willingly took on this rejection so that we could be accepted. And if Jesus is rejected by the world, you better believe we will be too. (laughs) And Jesus says exactly that in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So this should be comforting to some of us and convicting to others. Because all of us probably have some opposition in our life, but we need to figure out why that opposition is coming. Years ago, I was on a train from Rome to Salerno with three kids, three and under. Angela was not on this train, and I, for two and a half hours, had to figure out how I keep these little kids captive and not disrupting all the people around us. And so what I did is I went in between the trains. If you've ever been a train, there's like that in-between area that's you know, closed off and safe. It's a little loud. They can make their noises and not disrupt anybody. So I'm in this small little in-between compartment Turner, three-year-old's doing his thing. Ivy's in her little baby seat. She can't even sit up at this point. And I'm holding two-year-old Collins against the door. I'm leaning against the door to the train behind me. And I could see there was this older Italian woman in, the, in, the, in my old train car looking at me. And she stood up and she came in and she had an irritated look on her face. And she, she told me, you can't do this. You can't do this in here. So to which I responded, listen, old hag. I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't say that. I, I, I said, ma'am, 
It's fine. We do this all the time. And she huffed and went back into her car. And right about then I realized that the window I'm leaning against on the door to the next train that everyone uses their hands to push open and closed, Collins is licking every square inch of that window. Every square inch. And I'm just thinking, I just told this woman we do this all the time. (laughs) It's how we build up our immune systems in America. My point is that when we see opposition in our lives, we need to really be discerning about why we're receiving that opposition. Is it that we're naive of something we need to be told? Is it that we're uh, ignorant to something that we have to be confronted on? I mean, there are many times people are opposed, Christians are opposed because we are self-righteous, condescending jerks. You see a lot of that these days. And, and there's no promise for that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But when we decide to humbly follow Jesus to the best of our abilities, there will be opposition to that. And that kind of opposition is just going to come. Jesus got it. We'll get it. Because if our deepest desire is to let the light of Jesus shine through our lives, there are going to be people for whom that light is just too bright. I've heard stories of policemen who would refuse to to take bribes to overlook certain crimes, and as a result, that shined a kind of light on other policemen who were taking those bribes and were overlooking those crimes, and the policemen who wouldn't do it would receive opposition and persecution from the ones that were, because a light was being shined on their practice. If you are in middle school or high school, which is mostly in the first service, but we have a few, if you're in middle school or high school, I can't think of a time in life that this is going to be more true. If you are in middle school or high school and you desire to follow Jesus and honor him in what you do, you are shining a light to other people that will just be too bright and you will be opposed, guaranteed. Some of you are in workplaces where you see this particularly poignantly. If Jesus is your consolation, if he is your comfort, you will feel discomfort in this life because of it. You'll feel it in your gym, you'll feel it in your school, you'll feel it in your workplace, you will feel it when no political party feels like home anymore, and we feel this discomfort because we are being conformed into the image of the Son of God, into the image of Christ. And the more we're conformed into that image, the less this home is going to feel like where we truly belong, and the more we're going to long for our eternal home where we do belong. Then think back to Stephen's words. The child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. There's no in between. It's one or the other. We can tell ourselves that we can have a little bit of the world and a little bit of Jesus, but ultimately, he is either going to be, to use Isaiah's words, a stone of offense or a sanctuary of comfort. One or the other. The greatest hope of mankind can also be the greatest threat to mankind. Jesus is either our hope or our threat. And if he's your threat, you have the daunting task of trying to find hope anywhere else in this broken world. But if Jesus is your hope, you will have what you need to keep waiting. Waiting's not fun. Waiting is where we began Advent. Waiting is where we're going to finish Advent because you have Simeon and Anna, and they have for years been waiting, waiting for the promised one. 
Anna's at least 84 years old. She hasn't left the temple complex in who knows how long. And she looked at Jesus and she saw the redemption of Israel. And we've waited all of our lives. We've waited for over 2,000 years for the consummation of the new covenant, for the second coming of Jesus. And what we know as we wait is that he will come one day. He will come, he will wipe away every tear, he will bring a new kingdom because he is the one who makes all things new. So how do we wait well? We see it in our text. Both Simeon and Anna, they clung to God. They were marked by prayer and fasting. They were utterly dependent on the spirit of God. And they were so connected to God that they, unlike the rest of their surrounding culture, they were able to see Jesus for who he really was. And when they saw Jesus for who he really was, I love, and this has been a theme through Acts as well, they couldn't help but overflow in joy by proclaiming to anybody who would listen, this is the one. Verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So as we wait, we encourage others who are waiting, some who know who they're waiting for, some who don't. So what do we see in Jesus? Our last song that we're gonna sing is going to be, All I Have, and All I have is Christ. And when we sing this, we're not singing this as if Jesus is a consolation prize. Oh, well, all I have is Christ. We're singing that in Christ is the only hope for our salvation. In Christ is the only hope for our endurance, the only hope for the love and grace and mercy of God to come into our lives and stay there forever. All we have is Christ. There's nothing else in this world who will give us the hope that Jesus does. And once we have him, the one who ransomed his life that we might have life eternal. And the highs and lows of this world, they're not going to to drain us or inflate us the way that they shouldn't. Because we have our only hope, Jesus Christ. All we have is Christ and we have all of Christ. And so we go on waiting. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word from your word. I pray that we would wait well because we have your consolation. I thank you for all of the Gentiles in this room who have been brought into the kingdom because Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. We thank you that even though we didn't even have the ability to see Jesus as such, you worked through your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to help us to see that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. God, may this season, with all its highs and lows, may they be measured because of the hope that we have in Jesus. May we not be despaired when things are hard, and may we not be prideful when things are going well, but let us all appropriately Feel those emotions under the larger umbrella and hope of Jesus and what he is doing 
to redeem his people. Give us hearts and wills to endure, to endure well, and to do it for your glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.